have been here the last few weeks, you'll know that we are going through a series in the book of Acts. Acts is written by a guy called Luke. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, which is essentially the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. First-hand witness account of it. And Luke enjoyed it so much, he went on to write a sequel called Acts of the Apostles. And that is all about the explosion of the early church post-resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus came back from the dead, and as we read in Acts 1, he made it convincing to all of his disciples that he had come back from the dead. And as a result, the church explodes out of this place of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence and the power of Jesus for the first time. So we've been going through chapter by chapter. And last week, Louisa brilliantly spoke about healing, which is why we shared some of those healing stories this morning. Thank you for those who got up and shared. It's incredibly encouraging to hear these stories of healing. Thank you for doing it. And it's really important, I think, what we're going to try and start doing more is when we hear these stories of healing, it raises faith in the room. It enables us to recognize again that God does heal today. And then to actually act off the back of that straight away and pray for each other in healing, I think is really fun to do. And so it will become less awkward as we do it more and more, but we just want to start applying this stuff straight away as opposed to having to wait till the end every time. And what was brilliant about Louisa's talk last week was she didn't just share stories of people always getting healed, she shared a number of stories of people not getting healed. And that is the thing with healing. We pray for healing, not because every person we pray for gets healed, but because sometimes they do, and miraculously. But the aim of healing is to always show the love of Jesus to people. So if people are prayed for for healing, if they feel loved, then that is a tick. That's a win. That is what we're trying to do. It's really important that people always feel loved. They don't feel exposed. Um, but we always pray because they're signs. I'm going to talk more about signs in a second. Now, this week's passage is all on the topic of evangelism. Now, I'm aware that when evangelism gets mentioned in church, it elicits a number of different responses, particularly among Christians. And I'm going to caricature them just for fun. Firstly, there's dutiful Doris. Now, dutiful Doris starts frothing at the mouth when evangelism gets mentioned in church because people need to know the truth because they're going to burn and they need to know about Jesus. And she goes nuts and she thinks that actually evangelism is all about being out there telling people that if they don't hear about Jesus, they're going to die and they need to hear about it. And so dutiful Doris, when she hears about evangelism in church, she gets incredibly excited. The only problem with dutiful Doris is that when she evangelizes, at best, it's incredibly awkward, but at worst, it puts everybody off any kind of concept of Jesus. That's dutiful Doris. Second is intimidated Timmy. Now, intimidated Timmy, when he hears about, hears about evangelism, he gets incredibly nervous, and he often puts his head in his hands, and he thinks, oh, no. Oh, he's talking about evangelism again. And Tim has read his Bible, so he knows evangelism's good, but he gets very nervous because he hates it. He absolutely, the idea of telling anyone about his faith in Jesus just makes him incredibly nervous, anxious, can't do it. And so what Timmy does is he tends to leave church services where they talk about evangelism feeling incredibly guilty. Because he knows he doesn't do it. He knows he should do it. Then there's social action Sammy. Now, social action Sammy, when he hears about evangelism, he often gets angry. Because it's not about telling people about Jesus. You've got to be Jesus. We need to do more. It's all about doing. We have to do lots of things. So social action Sammy says talk is cheap and tends to dismiss the whole thing. And then finally, parish church Polly. Now, I love parish church Polly. I believe in the parish church. I think the parish church is amazing. I think actually the parish church is set up for evangelism in this country. But the problem with parish 
parish church, Polly, is often she doesn't even hear it when we talk about evangelism because she's preoccupied with other things like organizing the next church fate. She's incredibly good, but the problem with parish church, Polly, is actually she needs to start injecting a bit of evangelism into the fate. Now, these are caricatures. Please don't be offended. I do it just to get your attention because it's fun. The problem with all four of these responses are that they totally misunderstand what evangelism is all about. It's completely misunderstood what the whole thing is about. And in Acts, in our passage this morning, we get an incredibly clear picture of what evangelism actually is. So I'm just going to read through it really quickly. Again, just so we can explain a little bit of it. Firstly, it's come off the back of this incredible healing. And so Peter and John have been teaching the crowds who inevitably gathered because they've just seen this person who's been healed from 40 years of not being able to walk. Imagine the crowd that that would draw. Peter stands up, starts talking to them about Jesus and people are genuinely interested. And then in our passage, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees essentially come up to Peter and John whilst Peter's preaching to the guys because they're causing a stir. And the thing about the Sadducees and the priests and the temple guards was they were there to basically subdue everything. They were under Roman oppression. And so anything that caused any kind of disruption would have meant that they might lose their power because they were given power by the Romans and they just had to control the Jewish people. So as soon as there was any kind of uprising, the priests and the temple guard were there in a flash because they had to subdue it and stop it from happening. Because what might happen is the Romans will then basically take the kind of peace by force by essentially removing them from power and their sword of wealth and so they were there to keep order and so they all gather and they're disturbed because they're teaching the people and they're proclaiming about Jesus being resurrected the Sadducees for example didn't even believe in the resurrection so they find this teaching disturbing and they seize them and they throw them in jail the next day they put them up um, on trial. Now, at trial, if you read in verse 6, Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas. Now, the thing about Annas and Caiaphas was they were there at the time when Jesus was first trialed, uh, put on trial by the Jewish leaders. So, essentially, what Luke is saying there is here's a repeat scenario. Exactly the same place, exactly the same people present, exactly the same kind of accusations against them. But this time, instead of it being Jesus, it's Peter and John. Can you imagine how Peter and John must have felt? Because this was exactly the same moment that Jesus basically got sentenced to death. But now it's Peter and John. We'll come back to that. They asked them, by what power or name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked in Acts 2. That's not a one-time event. That's an ongoing event. We're supposed to constantly be filled by the Holy Spirit. If we want to do what we read about in here, it's an ongoing process. We're being filled to overflowing the whole time. Peter gets filled again here. And he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're called to account for doing such a kind thing and we're being asked how he was healed, this is how he was healed. It's by the name of Jesus. And then he shares the gospel. Verse 12, he says, salvation is found in no one else. We'll talk about that in a second. And then when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished and took note that these people had been with Jesus. Now, the thing about the disciples that we need to know is these guys weren't actually disciples. In fact, Jesus wasn't actually a rabbi. He didn't go to rabbinic school. He was recognized as a rabbi because of all the following he got and because of the stir that he created. The disciples that he called were down and out. So essentially, they had gone back to their normal trades, so fishing or whatever, or farming, because they weren't picked up by a rabbi. So they were seen as pretty stupid failures in society. Jesus comes along. He calls them in to be his disciples. And then the story of, his, kind of, of the Gospels emerges as the disciples see Jesus do what he does. 
And so the kind of temple guard and the Sadducees, these were the richest of the rich and the most clever people in the land. They're seeing these unschooled people and they cannot believe, they're astonished at what's going on. And they say, what are we going to do with this man, they ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. To stop them, they say, you're not allowed to do it in Jesus' name anymore. And then Peter ends by saying this, and I think this is brilliant. He says, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. Now, remember, we said three weeks ago that the whole of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. The whole point for the disciples was that they didn't just believe in the resurrection, they saw the resurrection. They saw the genuine physical body of Jesus walking, talking, eating with them, explaining to them the gospel, what had happened on the cross, what it meant that he'd been raised from dead. They weren't making statements of faith when they talked about Jesus. They were making statements of fact. And remember, there were 300 other people that also saw the resurrection. And so as a result, all this stuff happens. So it's a particularly exciting passage. But let's focus on evangelism. This is a nice little line of what people generally think evangelism is all about. It says this, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Now, this is attributed to a guy called Francis of Assisi. There's actually zero evidence that he ever said this or wrote it down. It's in none of his teachings, but people love to attribute it to him. And the thing is, if you read the teaching of Francis of Assisi, you realize quite quickly that actually he doesn't do this at all. In fact, what's kind of trying to be said here is that what we really need to do is we need to embody the gospel first. It's about social action. And then if necessary, we'll use words to talk about Jesus later on. But to be honest, the important thing is embodying the gospel and being Jesus to people, which is obviously absolutely right. Now, social action, Sally, or was it Sammy? Can't remember. He'd see this and he'd say, brilliant. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Let's stop talking about Jesus. Let's just be Jesus. But the problem with dutiful Doris is like, no, this is ridiculous. If you don't actually say in words what you're trying to embody in person, then nobody is ever going to know who it is that you're talking about or who you're pointing towards. And this is the important thing about our evangelism is when we embody the person of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, when we do social action, when we become and be Jesus out there, the whole point, and healings in particular as well, the whole point is all of this stuff are called this signs. And signs aren't ends in and of themselves. Signs are supposed to point to something and they're supposed to point to Jesus. So inevitably, there's going to be a point where you're going to have to talk to people about Jesus. So the way I like to reword this is I like to have it more like this. Preach the gospel at all times. If we do that bit properly, then this should follow. When necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. I'm going to show you in this passage how that happens. Because if we do the first bit right, if we really embody what it means to be Jesus, his hands and feet in the earth, then we're going to have to do the second bit. It's actually not an optional extra. It kind of generally goes along hand in hand with the former. So, preach the gospel at all times. Chapter 4, verse 16. This is what the rulers and the elders and the temple guard, this is what they say about Peter and John. They say this, what are we going to do with these men? They ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. A life embodying the person and the life of Jesus should elicit this kind of response. We cannot deny what is happening through these people. 
How are we going to react? What are we going to do? See, the thing about evangelism, particularly social action evangelism, and any kind of uh, whole life evangelism, is it will always provoke a response. It will always mean that people are going to be asking the question, what is going on with these people? Because the truth is, there's lots of organizations out there doing social action, but they're not Christians, and they're doing amazing things in the world. But the point for us is we're doing it as a response to our love for Jesus, and so therefore it should always elicit a response back. People should always be asking what exactly is going on. And so if we talk about Jesus kind of embodying the gospel, often the passage that people talk about is in Luke 4 where he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to release the oppressed, to release the prisoner, and to set people free. And essentially, that's the embodiment of the gospel for Jesus. And he goes on to do exactly that. And so the point for us as Christians, as we try to emulate Jesus in the world, as we try to become his hands and his feet, this is the question we should be asking ourselves when it comes to evangelism. Is our life a sign that cannot be denied? Is our life a sign that cannot be denied? Are your friends asking, what am I going to do with this mate I have? What am I going to do with this problem? Because there's something different going on here. And do you know what the difference is? The difference is the power of the Holy Spirit. Because there's lots of people out there doing amazing things, social action, doing lots of incredible things in the world and actually expressing God's love to people. The difference with Christians is we're doing it, we're trying to do it the whole time in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about releasing the oppressed, we're not just talking about tackling unjust um, kind of systems of belief and systems of oppression in society. We're talking about literally praying for people to be set free, both emotionally and physically. We're embodying the very power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to see those things happening. And so therefore, there should be a difference when our friends and our family and our work colleagues see us embodying the gospel because they should see the power and the presence of Jesus on us. And when they see that, it always elicits the question. It always means that they ask, as a result, what on earth am I going to do with this? I've been presented with something different here. What is going on? And so second part of that mantra, preach the gospel at all times. We're doing it with the power of the Holy Spirit. When necessary, use words. If we're going to do the above, then it will be inevitable that we will have to use words to explain what's going on because the difference is that the power that we, in which we do these things is not humanly possible. See, the thing about social action is if we just keep going and going and going and trying and trying and trying, we're just going to wear ourselves out and become exhausted. And so the difference as Christians is we're doing it in response of the overflow of being in the presence of the Holy Spirit the whole time. And so there's going to come a point where our friends are asking, what is different about you? How is it that you're able to do what you are doing. And that's part of the reason why I love the gifts of the Spirit, because I think the gifts of the Spirit are undeniable in terms of provoking that kind of question. So when we hear about healings that we've just heard about, it is so other, it's so set apart, it's so different from what we're hearing out there that people genuinely ask the questions. And they're good questions, they're skeptical questions. They're saying, well, did that really happen? Like, is that actually a thing? And it all opens up an opportunity to do what those things are designed to do, to point to Jesus rather than point to the miracle in and of itself. So, what is the gospel? Now, there's a fifth Christian kind of person that I didn't talk about in the beginning. And this person would be someone who actually loves evangelism, thinks it's a great idea, 
like has read their Bible, understands that it's part of what it means to be Christian, understands that we embody it, that we're doing it in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, understands that actually there will come a point where we're talking about Jesus as opposed to just being nice to everyone we meet. Now, this person tends to be up for evangelism. When they hear about evangelism, they want to do it, but the problem is they don't really know how to do it. The problem is it's almost like as a church, we've never trained people to be able to take that second step from just embodying Jesus out there to speaking about him and the change he can make in our lives. And I think part of the problem has been in the last 10 or 20 years as a church, what we've done is we've said to people, you're doing a great job, get out there, kind of be Jesus. When people ask a question, you just want to invite them to our course because we've got a great course. And if you invite them in, we'll do a course for them and then we'll explain really nicely what Christianity is all about. And I think there's a place for that and I think it's really good fun. Like we're doing our life course at the moment over at our house and we've got about 20 people on it and it is brilliant. Like people are genuinely open and up for talking about Jesus. But I actually think that it kind of almost neuters the church because it means that we're not able to do on the scale that the church is supposed to do the work that we're supposed to be doing out there. You guys actually are capable, just as capable as a course of preaching the gospel, just as capable as me of preaching the gospel as I lead the life course. The point is that as we go out and we embody the gospel, we're actually doing it out there. There should come a time really where those courses are just really, in a sense, trying to fill in some of the gaps for people as opposed to actually doing the work of bringing people to a relationship with Jesus. So what do we mean when we talk about the gospel? When it says that when necessary we're going to use words, what kind of words are we talking about? Well, here were the words for Jesus. So the gospel basically is just good news. The gospel means good news. And it's good news. It's not a message. It's not a set of doctrines or beliefs. It's good news about a person. It's about the person of Jesus. So the gospel is about Jesus. It's about nothing else other than Jesus. So for the gospel, for Jesus, the gospel is essentially here I am. As you read the gospels, he's there and he's standing here I am. I'm the Messiah. And he's talking to a mainly Jewish audience. He's saying, you have heard all of these prophecies pointing to my arrival because you felt like you've been under oppression for the whole history of your existence. And here I finally am. I'm going to lead you out of oppression into freedom. And so for the people hearing that, it struck a chord straight away because they've been waiting for it the whole time. And they thought what Jesus had actually come was to liberate them from Roman oppression at the time. But as you read the story of Jesus and his interaction with the people, you realize that he's come for something so much bigger than that. So the gospel for Jesus is, here I am. The gospels for the disciples is, there he was, you killed him. Oh, and by the way, God raised him to life again. He now lives in us. Would you like to believe and be saved by him? Different gospel, same person. So the disciples are now saying, well, Jesus was here. He's now dead because you killed him, but he's been brought back to life. So therefore, it kind of takes on a different message. And then in Acts, and we'll find this out as we go through it, you'll find times where Paul or other of the apostles will be teaching people who aren't Jewish people. So wouldn't have that understanding of the Old Testament kind of context and the prophecies uh, awaiting a Messiah. And they actually take a totally different track. So they take a totally different um, approach to evangelism in general. And here's the thing about us and the kind of words that we want to use when we evangelize in the world to our friends, to our neighbors, to those people we love in our family. We actually need to make a connection between Jesus and these people. Because for the Jewish people, the connection was easy. It was there. They'd all know their Old Testament. They'd know what the prophecies were pointing towards. For those who uh, Peter and John are speaking to in this story, the connection was there. It was the same people that sentenced Jesus to death. 
So they're just talking about something that's just happened. But for the people we're meeting and talking to out there or in here, it's a totally different context. We need to create a different connection. And that's why we do things like the life course, because we tend to open it out further and talk about meaning in general. And so if I were to articulate the gospel, I would say that essentially the gospel is the truth that life basically will lack any kind of ultimate meaning unless God is at the center. Ultimately, life is quite, it's quite hard to find meaning in life unless God's at the center. Now, the problem is a lot of people don't know that that's the truth, partly because they're finding meaning in lots of different things, and that's good, and that's decent, and there's lots of good to be had in the different meanings. But ultimately, when it comes to it, and this is what week one of our life course is, we talk about what meanings we attribute to our life, and then ultimately, by the end of the session, when we get to the discussion, most people are saying, yeah, but I don't think it's got any kind of overarching meaning in my life. Like it means something for a time, like money's great for a time, but when you get lots of it, you realize actually it doesn't solve all my problems. Or relationships are brilliant, but isn't it funny how sometimes the closest relationships, the most loving relationships, are the ones that cause the most pain to me. And actually then it just feels really bad. And the thing is, like power's brilliant. I feel like I feel alive when I have influence and power, but the truth is there's always more I should have of it or can have of it. And ultimately when I have it, it feels like it's actually all about me. And so the, the, the gospel is saying, actually, you were created to have God at the center of your life. And the problem is all of these other things that we put at the center of our lives pale in comparison to relationship with God. And so remember, it's actually about the person of Jesus. And so putting God at the center becomes impossible because we fill it with all these other things. And essentially, all these other things are self-directed. That's why we often talk about sin being like a life turned in on itself. We were never meant to live a life that was turned in on itself, that was always about us. We were supposed to live this life of giving and giving love and being Jesus out in the world. And so therefore, by dying on the cross in our place, Jesus makes it possible for us to empty ourselves of all that stuff that gets in the way of putting God at the center. Of actually realizing when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is the one person in the history of humankind who's ever lived a life where God is truly at the center. And as you read the Gospels, you realize it's an incredibly attractive life. That when people read about it, they think that's actually what living really is. That's what fullness of life looks like. And so Jesus makes it possible by dying on the cross and then being resurrected, defeating death once more, so that we can then put God at the center of our lives once again so that we can live this life of fullness and meaning. And so where's the connection there? Well, the connection is meaning. And essentially, it's what Peter and John, or Peter, is talking about here in this passage. So when he explains the gospel to those who asked him, they said, in what name are you doing this? Verse 12, he says this. Salvation, he says, basically, it's by the name of Jesus. And he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, that word saved isn't just about being saved from death. It's about wholeness. It's about living life in its fullness, in its entirety, in the here and in the now. And so therefore what he's saying is you can get salvation through the person of Jesus. Now that is relevant to anyone at any point in history. Because all it was for the Jewish people was they put the law at the center of their lives or they put money at the center of their lives or they put power at the center of their lives. And out there, there are so many people and in here and we put all a myriad of different things at the center of our lives and we know that it doesn't truly satisfy. And so the gospel is just saying, actually, you can be rid of all that and you can put Jesus at the center of your life instead and then you'll be truly alive. You'll be the people you were created to be. 
And this is good news. It's good news for the lonely. Because finally, those who feel lonely can meet Jesus. And Jesus makes us feel fully known for the first time in our life. Why? Because he was there before we were even created. He knows us inside out. His thoughts for us outnumber the grains of sand on the earth. It's good news for the purposeless because Jesus can give us a purpose and a meaning in our life that goes beyond individual relationships, that goes beyond a career, that actually encompasses the whole of our life and gives us true value. It's good news for those who are obsessed with money at the same time as good news for those who have no money because actually Jesus is saying to those without money that you can have riches beyond your wildest dreams. You can have true riches by being a son or a daughter of the living God. It's good news for those who are obsessed with money because we can say to those guys, all of that value and worth that you put into having money can be transferred to Jesus and you won't be broken by him. He will make you live and live life in all its fullness. It's good news for the broken because it doesn't mean that it's just kind of healing in our future. So it doesn't mean we now live a great life of fullness. It means our past can be redeemed. And so therefore it means that we can find forgiveness for those times where we've not lived up to who we were created to be. And therefore Jesus can go back and use it for healing and help us find wholeness in it. And then those things become the greatest weapon as we move, move forward and share Jesus with other people. It's good news for the burnt out. Jesus said that if you feel heavily laden or if you feel burdened you need to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light so for those of us that feel like we need to constantly work for affirmation we need to constantly work in order to feel any kind of worth or purpose or value the good news is that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done in order for us to feel the most valued we could ever possibly feel we just need to come to him and it's good news for the addicted because it means we can replace that addiction that we have for that thing that's actually destroying us and instead become addicted with Jesus who constantly satisfies our heart's desire and won't harm us. So how do we become signs that cannot be denied? How do we live lives that provide and provoke constant questioning from those around us? Well, I think the key verse in this whole passage is verse 13. It says this, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. You see, the difference with Peter is astonishing as you read the Gospels and then the book of Acts, because when Jesus was crucified, when he was in exactly the same court that these guys are currently being accused in, Basically, Peter was nowhere to be seen. In fact, he fled the scene. And there's a number of points in the Gospels where essentially Peter is asked if he knows Jesus and he denies having even known him. So what happened between then and between now when he's actually standing up in exactly the same court and he's standing and being accused of exactly the same thing that Jesus was accused for? He'd been filled with the Holy Spirit and he'd met the resurrected Jesus. So for us, in a sense, the pressure's off. We don't need to go out there and try really hard to be great evangelists. We don't need to go out there and try and make our lives count for something to point to Jesus. Our one main role as Christians is to be with him, to pursue intimacy 
with Jesus. From that, everything else will flow. So this is good news for Doris, because Doris, who's trying really hard out there to evangelize everyone she comes across and talking all the time about how if, if Doris can experience being with Jesus, it means that what she's doing out there actually becomes communicating the love and the power of Jesus in people's lives and in her own life. It's good news for Timid Timothy or whatever his name was because he can actually be filled with power. As he meets with Jesus, he's filled with the power and actually there'll be times he doesn't even need to say anything. People are just asking him questions and his evangelism will happen in the most natural way possible. He won't feel like he's having to remember Bible verses or say the right thing because it will happen in a really natural way. It's good news for social action Sammy because she won't get exhausted anymore. She won't have breakdowns because she's trying to do everything in her own strength. Instead, she can be filled with the power of the spirit as she does social action and people are naturally attracted to what's going on in her and it's great news for parish church polly because she will organize the best church fates known to man and there'll be church fates where there's healing for people who need healing it'll be church fates where people can give words that god has given to christians to give to other people to encourage and to build them up they'll be the most powerful church fates you've ever seen how do we do it we spend time with Jesus. How do we spend time with Jesus? We create space. I think this is the biggest issue in all of our lives in terms of being with Jesus is we just don't create space. Create space every day to be with Jesus. Kind of things you can do in your time when you're creating space. You could try reading the Bible. Closest source we have to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As you do it, you'll realize that it will speak to you and that you'll receive power and you'll be encouraged as you read about Jesus. We can try praying. What I like to do when I pray is I start just, anything that comes into my mind, I just give it to God as I'm praying. And then what you'll find is the more you do, in that, this is mindfulness. So people talk about mindfulness all the time. This is the beginnings of mindfulness. So mindfulness is you empty your mind of all the stuff. So do that for the beginning bit of your prayer. And then at the end, like after you've done that, don't just leave it, which is where mindfulness stops. Then ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask to get filled with the presence and the power of Jesus and then watch what happens afterwards. Spend time worshipping. Read some of the Psalms if you can't sing. If you can sing, try singing. If you want to just listen to worship music, what happens when we worship is we remind ourselves of who God is and we remind ourselves often of who we're not in light of who he is. And that leads to repentance, leads to forgiveness. It enables us to actually fill our lives again with the presence of God as opposed to our own desires and aspirations. What will it look like if we all do it? It will look like 100 people in this room going out and creating problems for other people. The good kind of problem. The kind of problem where people say, what is going on in your life? What am I to do with you? But we have to start with his presence. So let's stand and we're going to pray.